All right, well, we'll get started. Welcome to our third week on the book of Ephesians. Out of at least six weeks, what should probably be 60 weeks, there's just so much here. We, we wrestle a lot with organizing the Sunday School to know how in-depth to go, and but to keep a breath and keep it moving to, so we can all get a, the full counsel of God through the years at Sunday School. Um, some of you are going to appreciate the the pictures and the, the fill in the blank. Some of you hate that stuff. Um, if any of you ever want, like the teacher's version, the filled in version, just let me know. I can bring extra copies. Somebody went home with those last week. For those who are listening online, so I know sometimes you can't be here. I'm happy to give you, I'm sure all the teachers have their handouts available on the computer. They could print off a copy or for those who aren't at our church, just uh, call into the office and I'm sure we can get that to you. And of course, if you ever have follow-up questions, please come and ask. We, we just can't cover everything here in uh, 45 minutes. Josh, could you please pray for us? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and you speak to us through it. We pray that you would give us ears to hear um, as we listen to this teaching this morning and um, that you would give Keith grace in his teaching, that he would be effective in Jesus' name. Amen. So open to Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 11 to 14. Therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So my structure overall today, this is a really rich passage we've only started, is to look at it and interpret it in three ways. Number one, I want to look at it historically. And then number two, I want to look at it as a, as a church. Uh, Paul is very concerned with the church here. And then individually as Christians, if we have time. I think it's very easy to come to any passage in the Bible and immediately apply it to ourselves individually. And of course, it does apply that way. But we don't want to miss the, the historical progression and certainly the, the body of Christ uh, when we talk about the plurality of, of the church, the united body. And so, and I, just kind of like I did in chapter 1, you know, you can just look at life in a binary way. Those are those who are uh, inside of Christ and outside of Christ. Those who are saved and those who are lost. And that is a true reality. It really is binary. But God doesn't just talk that way. He He gives us a nice painted brush and fills it fills in um, you know all the all the different colors and the multifacetedness. I talked about the diamond of salvation. All these words that are used. It's different to be called as it is to be adopted, as it is to be justified. Those are all true of Christians, and none of those are true of those who are not Christians, and yet they all mean something. So God has reason to explain these things and, and dissect them. And so we're going to do that a, a bit today as those who were once you were this way, but now you're this way. So we just want to take a little time and kind of look at what, through Paul, he's saying here. So as you go through there, you can see, number one, he says that we're separated. We're separated from Christ. At one time, this, is, this was the description of you, is that you were separated. 
and then you were alienated. Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And then you're strangers. You can see these are all very similar language, and yet they are distinct. They are talking about distinct things, and we'll hit these over and over. Verse 12 says, you have no hope. Oh, wrong color. No hope, and without Christ, I'm just going to lump up here. I'm sure you could lump these different ways. Separate from Christ and without God. And then in verse 13, he says, you're far off. And then I'm going to sneak a verb here that's not actually there, but he says that basically you're divided. That Jesus needs to break down this dividing wall of hostility. That's kind of what I've drawn in the middle there. So this was a description of where you once were as Gentiles in the flesh. who are called the uncircumcised. So there you were. I mean, think about those words and let them sink in. That's a pretty desperate situation. Separated, without God. You're alienated. You're strangers. You have no hope. You're far off. Chapter 1 talks about Jesus uniting all things in himself. This is far from being united. You're far off and separated. And you're not just separate, but you're actually physically, actively divided. It's not just that you're far away and, you know, there's a clear path to get there. There's, if you ran, there's a wall there. God built a wall. And you're separated. And you have no hope. And we t- obviously the uncircumcised, that makes sense. And we're talking about Gentiles in the flesh. So we, we saw last week that Paul had gone through the whole world, the Turkey and Greece and, and Italy, not yet to Italy at this point, when he founded the church in Ephesus, he would start in the synagogues, he'd leave the synagogue and preach to the crowds, and so these churches were a mix of Jews and Gentiles. And it's interesting to me that perhaps he's saying, you Gentiles in the flesh, he's talking to a specific group, or maybe that's the majority of the church, I'm not sure. But these Gentiles in the flesh, who, who aren't necessarily steeped in Old Testament language, and yet he uses a ton of it. And he was there for three years, he was able to explain it, but, you know, as, as people who aren't necessarily familiar with biblical language, that, that language needs to be understood and taught. And so, these were the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. They're not the Jews, they're not the circumcised. Uh, I've always misspelled that word, somewhere in there. Um, where am I? So as the, as New Covenant people, even as Gentiles who aren't steeped in the Old Testament language, there's a lot of language of the Old Testament that is applied to us. And, and, and as we read our Bibles, if we don't understand that, we need to go ask and start understanding that. We just don't want to skip through a passage and kind of, may, uh, you know, decide what it might mean. And of course, as we talk to those outside the church, they're not even, they don't even understand New Testament language, much less Old Testament language. That stuff needs to be explained. And so historically, as we look at this, first of all, we really do have physical Gentiles who were outside of Israel. 
And the, these are not just, they're not just pictures. This was reality. In, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, if you were a Gentile outside of Israel, you were without hope. You, you were separated. You were alienated. The promises were given to the people of Israel. And so for you to be outside of God's people in God's land, with God's sacrificial system set up, there's no forgiveness for you. You're, 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 you're strangers. You're outside. This is where God was. He sets his dwelling place there. First in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And so God organizes his people in a way to be very different. This was very purposeful that they, they wore different clothes. They ate different things. They, they did different festivals, certain holy days they had to do. And if you were a stranger passing through or living in Israel, but not of, of, of the Jewish community, you were different. It was very clear. And so this Jewish mindset of, of Gentiles, of those outsiders, those unclean, was something that God actually established. And so as we see, and later we'll talk about this mystery of unfolding, we have to have a little bit of sympathy for the Jews steeped in their religion for all these years, and then God started to do something among the Gentiles. That was so new. This, there was a hardness of heart. There was a coldness. They took this the wrong way. They, they took pride in being the chosen one, to being the beloved, the elect. And yet this separation was something instituted by God to teach us something, to teach the world something, to teach the Jews something. Now there's lots of ways that people understand you know, Christians disagree on this, exactly how we, how we look at Old Testament passages, how we apply those, how we understand language like this. Um, you know, some people who believe in a lot of continuity between the covenants have no trouble seeing Old Testament Israel as the Old Testament church and calling the church of today the new Israel. Other groups want to really separate those. You know, the promises are given to Israel. We're still waiting for a physical Israel. The church is maybe a little parentheses in the middle. There's a lot of blended views in the middle that Israel, that, you know, Israel forfeited their promises, so God has replaced them and given those promises to the church. Some see Israel as a foreshadow, uh, and just an example of what it's like to relate to God, and there is no such thing as Israel today. There's all sorts of views out there. It's something you need to study and, and, and come to terms for yourself, because as you come to certain passages, you need to apply those. But whatever your position on those is, you've got to see that a lot of this Old Testament language is now being applied to even to the Gentiles as we come to the right side of the board here. In Ephesians 4, Paul's going to use, and, and he does this in Colossians 2, where he calls, he talks about the word Gentiles in the way that the world lives. That's the way the world lives. The, the godless, immoral world is what the Gentiles are. We must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And so, even in a New Testament church, as Paul is trying to unite Jews and Gentiles under one head, Christ, we still have this world of Gentiles out there. He still uses this kind of terminology. And of course, that's what how most of the Gentiles do live. Philippians 3 says, Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are their circumcision. Here's another church of Jews and Gentiles. And yet, Paul's going to say we now. New, New Testament church. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus 
and put no confidence in the flesh. And so now we're going to start to move to this side. He says, once you were Gentiles in the flesh, but now verse 13, in Christ, now in Christ, there's a new creation. There's a new reality. And so we want to match these new realities to the old realities. Is basically what I'm doing up here. All right, so we will read, starting at verse 13 again, in chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we once were far off, we've been brought near. What a reversal, what a transformation. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the divining wall, of hostility. And so down here, instead of division, there's going to be peace. And you'll see on there, in this next verse, what specifically that dividing wall was. How did he, how did he break down this wall so that we could have a new transformation? By abolishing the law of commandments, expressing ordinances, that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so we have peace, we have reconciliation. We talked about this language, we went through Romans 5. Uh, he killed the hostility. This is a dividing wall of hostility, and now he's killed it. And how did he do that? He had to get rid of the law. The, the, the very thing that God used to separate the nations, to separate Israel from the rest of the world, he is now breaking that down because that's essential. That's what's dividing them. And so it says a lot. I'm going to make some room. I had in my mind this beautiful image how this could turn into a cross. So he's broken down. And now through the cross, he's broken down that law. Jesus has paid the price for that law. Verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. So he came and preached peace to the Gentiles and peace to the Jews. Those who are far off and those who are near. Through, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. One thing I didn't put on there was all the ones. Think of all the ones now. We have one body. Access to one spirit, to the Father, to one Father. It's all one now. So then you were no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer strangers and aliens. But you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Where did I put that up mine? And we'll talk about some of this different language. Alienated from the commonwealth and fellow citizens. That's very national language. And then we're members of a household. We'll get to that in a second. And so, I'm missing some here. Well, I'll keep reading to get there. Okay, so verse 18, we talked about now we have access. Instead of being separated, we now have access. Access through the work of Christ on the cross, of destroying the law. Now there's access. Uh, Romans 5.1. Um, we're now justified. By being justified, we have now have access to the Father. I know I just horribly misquoted that. But the, the whole concept of being accessed there. All right, we will get, we'll fill in the rest of this as we get into chapter three. Um, but just see that 
there was this huge separation historically. The Gentiles, it really mattered that you were Gentile. It was a, John Piper says, it was a come and see religion. Queen of Sheba, come and see what I'm doing. Come, come and see. Israel's not going out to the nations at this point. The temple is, is an, it's a physical spot. You need to come, you need, you need to perform the rituals. You, this is not an exportable religion in many ways. You need to come to where God is. And now, as the dividing wall is broken down, it's a go and tell religion, right? Now, herald this to all the nations. And we can all be one. There, there is no more Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised. And he's going to actually adopt that language now, that now when we talk about Jew and Gentile, we're talking about the Gentiles or those that are worldly, those that are outside the church. And now we're the circumcised as one body, as one new man in Christ. We're the circumcised. We're the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. Yeah, Ralph. When you, when you look at the centrality of the temple to the Jewish faith and the fact that it was destroyed in AD 70, there's really no Jewish religion left. Right. Right. All that law was gone. We saw in Hebrews how if you're going to have a new priesthood that's talked about in the Old Testament, that means a new law. Everything is going to have to change. Very much demonstrated by the coming down of the temple. There's no way to even practice the Old Testament religion at this point. All right. There's so much I'm trying to cover. I'm just trying to piece it together as best I can. Tim once said, I wrote this down a few weeks ago, Tim, though Abraham lived under the Old Covenant, he is a paradigm for how we ought to live our lives. While we are in the kingdom, but not have it but have not yet received the fullness of the kingdom. So again, an example of you needing to understand how the old and the new relate, and so that you know how to apply passages like that. How do I look at Abraham as a Gentile, new covenant believer? How do I relate to Abraham? That's a very serious question, and the one that's talked about a lot in the Bible. All right, I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 3, and we'll come back to the rest of chapter 2. So I'm now moving down in your handout to the church section. Um, in one way, this passage outlines very beautifully. In other ways, it's horrible because there's all these nice sections. There's, there's ways to break this down. And yet they're just so interrelated. You can't talk about the historical without the church, without the individuals. And so I'm just going to try to grapple with it all and try to bring it all back together. Um, so, the well, let's just go ahead and read chapter 3, verses... Let's see. I'm lost a little bit. Let's read verses 1 through 8. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God, who created all things." So I want to talk about this mystery. Um, I've given you all the passages there where this mystery is talked about, Ephesians, Colossians, and Romans. It's talked about quite a bit. And so I just want to go point to point there of what this is. 
uh, verse 6 tells us exactly what it is. Here's the spoiler alert. It seems like Paul is building up. He keeps talking about this mystery. All right, what are you talking about, Paul? Then he finally tells us. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. It's just what we've been talking about. This, this whole breaking down of the dividing wall was a mystery. It wasn't known. The members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Colossians 1 uh, actually says that the mystery is Christ himself. That, he's the mystery. Romans 11 talks about, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So in Ephesians, he doesn't get into that, but actually what happens is th- this group is now opened up and the group that used to have access and used to be citizens is now being hardened. And we saw in Romans 11 where, you know, the natural branches are taking off unless they believe, and then they can be grafted back again. So actually, these guys win and gain, and these guys lose. It's a, it's really a total reversal unless this group now accesses Christ, accesses God by Christ, by faith. Because that is the one way. That is the true one way to enter. So, I know the Christians have a lot of different views of these things, but the view you cannot hold is that God still has a physical people that enter the kingdom because of their physical nature, without faith in Christ. That is not a view that's even uh, remotely possible with the gospel. Now, it's interesting, uh, in Luke 24, for instance, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, uh, reveals himself to the disciples, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so it's, it's not that the everything about Christ in the gospel was a mystery. Um, it was there. It was there to be found, to be studied. If you, if you had the eyes, if you understood what God was doing. Romans 3, the righteousness of God has now been manifested apart from the law. He's talking about this. There's a righteousness that's apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And so there, there's a bearing witness to all of this. Yes, it was a mystery. Yes, it wasn't understood. And maybe that means it wasn't possible to be, certainly not fully understood. Without the New Testament scriptures, we wouldn't fully understand these things. But, but the hints were there. The seeds were there. The apostles, I mean, Paul's able to enter these synagogues and open the Old Testament scriptures and point about the Jesus, about Jesus back there. He's not just coming with some brand new religion. Certainly it's a new revelation. It's a, it's a progression of God's revelation, but it's not all the way new and just, you know, from way out there, we're just going to get rid of everything you've ever learned. No. He's building upon it. He's showing that it's the true, the, the, the true interpretation of those things. In Hebrews, we've been seeing that. I mean, the understanding of sacrifice, of the temple worship, of all these things, now takes on a, a whole new category of understanding. Yeah, Ed. It's just, you see how great it is in Acts that Peter has to be Yeah, and I'm sure it was always a temptation, right? Not only because of the persecutions without a a, a shared fellowship. I mean, Paul always talks about that. His love for his brothers, the the Jews of the flesh. He has a heart for them. Um, Clearly don't have time to read through all these passages, so let me just help distill to you through all these different verses the different points of the mystery. Okay, we know what it is. It's Gentiles becoming part of the whole body and partakers of the promises. We see that it's hidden. 
Well, that makes sense. That's kind of the definition of a mystery, right? These are the, these are the phrases he uses. It's not made known. Uh, it's hidden for ages. It's hidden for ages and generations. God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in Colossians, where he says that Christ himself is the mystery, in Christ are hidden all the wisdom. If you want wisdom, you want riches, we talked about this at the beginning, right? Ephesians 1.3. All of our blessings are to be found in Christ. Romans 16, this was kept secret for long ages. This wasn't just a passive thing. On one hand, they should have seen some of this in the Bible. There's that tension. Don't you see? It's right here. It's right here. You read this every week. You didn't get it. And yet, at the same time, there's, there's an active God keeping these things secret. He's choosing not to reveal this. He has a plan. We saw that uh, in chapter 1. All right, so this hidden, this mystery is now revealed. It's made known. It's revealed. It's brought to light. Paul is called to make the word of God fully known. It's now revealed to a saint. It's made known. I have shown myself, Romans 10. That's kind of a slap in the face to the Jews in Romans 10. I was not found by those who sought me, but I've, made, I've shown myself to those who never asked for me. What a reversal. God, God must initiate. We saw that by grace. God must initiate and show himself. Romans 16, the mystery has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all the nations. And like I said, this was all according to his eternal purpose. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, it's the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Ephesians 3, 9, he brings to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages of God. So when I'm talking about this historical thing, th- this was all part of, of God's plan through the ages. At, at this time, when, when this one who's born of a woman, who's born of the law, at this time, God has chosen to throw everything up, to, 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 to toss it all, and to bring in something that's completely new. And of course, that's that plan. Understand the historical progression is what gives us hope as we look forward and hearken to God's promises for the future. Now, how does he do this? He does this through a calling. Paul says, this was made known to me by revelation. And it's been made known through his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In Colossians 1, he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So Paul had a very unique and specific calling, as did others. To the saints of this time, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And through that calling, those who were called now proclaimed that mystery. In Ephesians 6, he says, I'm going to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And he asks for prayer that I may declare it boldly. In Colossians 4, he's going to declare the mystery of Christ, and he prays that I may make it clear. So that's a great definition of evangelism. So the work of evangelism is to declare boldly and clearly the mystery of Christ. So there's two things there, right? So the this is a mystery, and this is going to kind of move us in our next section of what it means, how this applies to the church. So as we now take that gospel, we're not back there 2,000 years ago, turning the world upside down with the Jew versus Gentile thing. For most of us, that's not really our context, right? We don't, Jews aren't our main thing that we have to convince of their Old Testament scriptures. It's, it's going to, it's going to take a different form, but it's the same thing. This gospel is a secret. It's hidden. It's not understood. 
When we go and share the gospel, we're talking to people who are blind and deaf. And chapter earlier in chapter 2, they're dead. We're going to take a message that, that requires some kind of faith, that requires understanding, and we're going to take it to a people who can't understand those things. They're completely in and of themselves incapable of accepting that message. It's really a fool's errand, right? Except for the power of God, the same power that created the world, that raised Jesus from the dead, that raised your dead life from the dead, and and brought you to new life. It's that power that you, by the Spirit, by that power, you're going to take that gospel and give it to dead people. And through that proclamation of of a mystery, of a secret, God's going to open eyes. He's going to breathe life into, into their nostrils. And you, you, those dead bones are going to come to life. And so it's a great two things to focus on in evangelism. Pray that we would be bold and clear. Now, most of us just need that first bit. We blame it on the second bit. I'm not equipped. I don't understand. I don't have all the answers. But really, it's, 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 it's a cover because we're not bold. We're not bold enough to simply say, I was dead and now I'm alive. Come to church and hear the rest. If that's all you can do, then do that. And yet we also want to be equipped. We want to be clear. We want to understand cultural language. We want to understand that people aren't going to understand these languages and we need to use language that they can understand. And we want to be patient and explain and reason. And so we want to be bold and we want to take the time to be equipped to make it clear. And the last thing on the mystery is that it has these effects. Uh, in Colossians 1, he prays that they would reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding the knowledge of God's mystery. And so in, in receiving this message, you're, you're to be equipped in knowledge and understanding, which would then give you assurance. That's how you have assurance, is to understand these things, to be equipped in your mind and your heart of these things, to understand the promises of God. Romans 11, he, he talks about this because lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. And so understanding this mystery ought to humble us because we can be so frustrated. It's, it's crazy if you think about it. We can be so upset with unbelievers. Like, why don't you just get it? This is so obvious. It's right here. Forgetting that that's how you once were. You once were dead and needed life poured into you. They're not stupid. They're fools, they're dead, but they're not stupid. They need life, they need the Spirit. And so we're patient with them, and yet we're bold. We tell them what they need. We, we declare the gospel even though we, we know they won't accept it, because through that proclamation, God gives life. So be humble as we take this message. And in Romans 16, all this talk about mystery is to strengthen you and to bring about the obedience of faith. So that when we say the mystery, it's kind of a, I guess a fancy way of just talking about the gospel. This good news of Jesus who has come into the world to save sinners. And so everything that Paul says about the mystery and all these passages, he's just talking about the gospel, what it means. All right, let's jump to the church. And for this, we're going to, well, we'll continue in chapter 3, and then we'll jump back to chapter 2. So chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now Dan's going to open this much more for us next week in uh, chapter 4. But 
God is very interested in His church. See how historically these things were revealed to His holy apostles and prophets like Paul. But now what's going on is that this message has been given to the church primarily. Verse 10 there. Through the church, God's going to reveal His manifold wisdom. Not only to the world, but to the rules and authorities in the heavenly places. So, and in chapter 6, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. So the church is very much in mind, in Paul's mind. And again, if we jump to this individual and we just start reading this language like, oh, I was separated from Christ. I was alienated. I had no hope. That's all true. But when God forms this new body, he does it as a body, not a bunch of individuals. And we'll see that back in chapter 2. So let's go back there. Let's go back to verse 19 of chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we have a household. So now we're going to see some images that are quite common in the scripture about the church. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So I just see this building language. We have a foundation. We have a cornerstone of Christ. A structure in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so I, when it says household, I don't know if what's more, normally, it's thinking about like the structure of a house or like a family. I mean, really those are one and the same. But it seems that he's, he's this whole idea of a household and family, he's, he's tying to this building structure. And then specifically he talks about the building of a temple. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then earlier, we had already read about uh, verse 16, for example. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. A foundation, a cornerstone, a structure. We're members of the household of God. First Peter 2 says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is described there as a cornerstone, chosen and precious. So the same language. So again, you've got to understand this Old Testament. It's not just imagery, it's realities, but it's a shadow of the true things to come. The, the true things are found in Christ, in the Jerusalem above. And so the temple was a physical place that the Jews could gather, there's a practicality to that. But there's also a reality of God's presence, what it meant. And because that's really about God's presence, God, God is everywhere, right? He didn't need a temple to live in. But, but it was supposed to show something to us and teach something to us. So that language is not just, it's just not a fancy way of talking about it, of symbolism. It's true that God's presence is now in the people of God, in the church. This is where God's presence is, in a special way. Yes, he's still omnipresent. And yet, in a special way, God communes with us as a body in the church. And we're known as a family. Even, even our leaders in the family are called elders. They're older brothers. All this language of brothers and sisters. You still talk about brothers as Jewish brothers. And now this is New Testament, New Covenant language. And we're being built together. And it's not, it's not a bunch of stones that are just inanimate. Right? These are living stones, First Peter 2 calls them. They're, they're living stones. It's, a, it's an organic building. It's the kind of building we don't have, really. It's, it's a building made of living people. 
It's being built up together as a, as a household and as a temple. And of course, we're seen as a body. Ephesians 4, he's going to talk about, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Again, you have a, you have a building that's growing. It's like, it's an, it's an organic wall of some kind. Um, there's these mixed metaphors. Romans 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. Colossians 2, the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So this body grows. And how odd would it be, looking at these kind of passages in this kind of language, for someone to just be some individual evangelist out there, just preaching the gospel, isolated, remote from the church in any sense, and just calling people to Christ, and yet not calling them to a church. It doesn't make any sense. Not in Paul's theology. And so for the, I don't know, you do have these. You have preachers who are out there who aren't tied to anything. Completely opposite of how you see Paul in the mission field. Paul was, number one, he was called by the Spirit as he's active in the church in Antioch. He's sent out by that church, and he keeps returning to that church to report. He's still under accountability to that church. So we don't want to discount the importance of the church, of the authority of the church, the calling of the church, that God is going to primarily work through the church in displaying his wisdom. We're not just individuals out there in our own workplaces, on our own, doing the best that we can with our Bible. I mean, we're doing those things, but we're connected down to a body. Membership classes the next two weeks. If you're not a member of the church, join or figure out that you don't want to join here and join somewhere else. I'd rather you join somewhere else than not join here. You can correct me, Pastor. <laughs> Be joined to a church. We want you to join here is what we want. <laughs> and then just quickly, let me talk about individual. Um, and for that, we'll go back to chapter 3, verse 16. All right, let's start at 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so Christ is going to be strengthened in your individual inner being. Christ is going to dwell in your heart. We want you to comprehend with all the saints, you individually with all the rest of the saints. And so, yes, it still applies to you as individuals. And just the whole image here, you're a member of a household. You're a, you're a member of the body. You're a stone within that temple. And a body is formed of many members. And so you enter this, again, you enter this relationship individually by individual faith. You don't, you, you don't, you're not going to be in heaven because of your parents' faith. Or, or because you attended a gospel preaching church. At some point in your life, you wrestle individually with God. You individually need to be brought from death to life and to lay hold of this gospel. As the gospel goes and the riches are being declared to the Gentiles, those riches are only effective to those who 
apprehend it by faith and grab hold of it. But as you grab hold of that by faith, you're going to be welcomed into a body, into a unity. Uh, let me go back and make sure we fill this in, because I know some of you would kill me otherwise. Uh, so chapter 3, verse 6, we talked about instead of strangers, you're now fellow heirs. And we, and we, we already talked about this. It's such a huge topic. When I was in Romans 15 and Romans 11, we talked about this. Here, the, the promises are given to Abraham and to Isaac and the offspring, right? The, these are promises in, in Jeremiah. This, these are promises to, to, um, to Judah and to Israel. Very, very Old Testament language. That's, the promises are given to a specific people. And yet somehow, we have the gall to believe as Gentiles that we can, you know, we are now heirs of that promise. We're partakers of that promise. And it's, of course, because we have faith in the Jew, Jesus, who truly fulfilled all those commands that Israel had. And through him, we now have access to the Spirit and all those promises. And this one might be a little forced, but having no hope, uh, we see there in uh, chapter 3, just that we have a hope in God's plan. Um, we have boldness and confidence. Understanding these things, again, understanding the mystery is what gives us assurance. Growing in knowledge and understanding. That's where our hope comes from, is really an understanding of all these things. All right. We have one and a half minutes for questions. No, we got a few minutes. Questions or comments, anything I've said? I know I went really fast. Wow. I think that one of the things that sticks out to me, going back to chapter two, is that when you think about the law being broken down, Paul specifically says that he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is not some... Not that the declaration of God would not be effective for that, but it's it's showing an active God doing this by the flesh, Christ, by his sacrifice on the cross, right. tearing down this wall. It's not some passive thing. It's an active thing that God has done. Yeah. Yeah. He, I guess I feel like I can say this wasn't possible. God couldn't have just declared these things. Because of the structure he set up, this, this law had to be dealt with. This law had to be fulfilled. And so it was, it, John 3 says it was necessary that the Son, be, Son of Man be lifted up. It's, it's a necessary thing. It wasn't necessary before the creation of the world. God's not bound by anything in that sense. But because God chose to, to judge and to create a people who are sinners, he now, he must, he must do something about that problem he's created for himself. We've talked about that in Romans 3, how it's a beautiful thing that Jesus must come in the flesh so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. It was the only solution. The only possible solution to this problem because there was, a, there was an unregenerate, cold-hearted, sinful people that God chose to love. That's the problem. God could have not loved them. No problem. They sin, they judge, they die. No problem in God's mind. None whatsoever. That's our starting place. Our starting place is not a, 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 you know, a baby in the world who's a neutral and we just kind of have to go with the influences of, of our upbringing or go with whatever God of our culture. No. We're starting dead. Ephesians 2. We're starting dead and in need of life. 
But because God chose and He put love on such people, he, and they, they were incapable of themselves to come, He had to come in the flesh, destroy this dividing wall, and then, of course, through the Spirit, by grace, raise them to life and continue through the rest of their life. He must continue to give us grace every day. What, what you're saying is He chose to love these people and He chose not to love those people. And that's the thing that a lot of people struggle with. Sure. Is that, you know, Abraham was no great guy. I mean, he was a pagan that God chose. Absolutely. He wasn't seeking God. And when you get in discussions with Armenians, it's like, well, you know, he, he, why did he choose these people? Were they better than everybody else? No. But he chose those people. Yeah, and, and, that, and understand that. Like I said in Romans 11, that ought to humble us to the core. Why me? The question is, why did he choose? Right. That's the question. Obviously, no man, look at me. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> Last question, comment. All right, let's pray. Our Father, there's a lot here, and as clumsily and as quickly as we go through, we pray that it would, it would just scratch the surface and give us interest to study these things fully. Help us to meditate on these truths. Help us to understand them and to grow in them and to never grow tired or, or bored of them. May these truths um, truly delight us May we get excited. May it give us the boldness to go and, and tell our friends and neighbors about the mystery of this God-man, Jesus Christ. May we be able to do it clearly and explain to them and, and with patience. And may we do it in a way that shows that we love them, we care for them, we don't see ourselves as better than them. And thank you, Father, for a church. Thank you for gathering us as individuals into a body. Help us to see how we can effectively be part of this body at Spring Meadows. Um, to know where our gifts and calling lie. Help us to submit humbly to our leadership. To submit to one another. Help us to take a word of, of exhortation from a brother or sister humbly. And to, to see the wounds of a friend. To see the love that's portrayed. And help us in our own individual lives to be disciplined, to be reading and praying daily, to be pondering and meditating and responding to the Spirit every day. We now pray for our hour of worship. Would your Spirit be with us as a holy people, as a family, as a temple? Pray that you would meet with us in a special way as you promised through the Word and Sacraments. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.